What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Farah Jassat. And me, Daniel ben Cotton. Managing a successful Premier League football team or a major company takes such fortitude and foresight. But how about leading a nation of millions and then persuading them to follow you into war with all the pain and sacrifice that entails? That is real leadership and that is what this podcast is all about. Daniel, tell us about the conversation. So this week we had Andrew Roberts, the historian, in conversation with Jeremy Paxman, the veteran BBC presenter, who's best known for his work as presenter on BBC Newsnight. And they discussed Andrew Roberts' new book, Leadership in War, which is an examination of the most important war leaders throughout history, including Winston Churchill, Margaret Thatcher, Napoleon, Nelson, and also the bad guys of history, including Hitler and Stalin. And they looked at the unique qualities that made them the leaders that they were. So it's everything from, in Churchill's case, an upbringing that emphasised his right to lead and rule, or with Thatcher, it was her realisation that she could lead in a way that the men around her seemed incapable of. It's a really interesting conversation about human personalities and what it takes to lead a country. And as well as the kind of personal and political side, they of course examined the tactical and strategic decisions that those war leaders took in times of war. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And just before we go to it, I wanted to also let you know about the other podcast series that Intelligence Squared has called How I Found My Voice. It's presented by the BBC journalist Samira Ahmed. And it's all about how prominent public figures came to find their voice from growing up their childhood experiences to the defining moments in their career. In season two, which has just launched and you can listen to now, we have guests from Michael Palin to Richard Branson, Naomi Klein, the whistleblower Chris Wiley the British MP Jess Phillips, and more. Check it out. Just search for How I Found My Voice on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Acast. Um, I'm going to ask you straight off, Andrew. Do you think that a, a successful military leader needs to be a decent human being? No, um, I don't at all. In fact, when one looks at... Uh, at several of them, really successful ones, um, very often they are complete... Um, what's the right word? <laughs> Shit. Yeah, that's the one. That's the one that I was teetering around. Um, Napoleon had 27 mistresses, um, of course. Uh, David Lloyd George once was asked when he was going off to the Versailles Peace Conference, will you be taking Mrs Lloyd George... And he replied, would you take sandwiches to a banquet? <laughs> um, 
however, they were, they were both great war leaders. Um, so, no, I don't think you're, you have to be a morally upstanding figure. It's a very interesting definition of what decency is on your part. I mean, who cares how many mistresses they have? But you're, you've got an absolute nerve in you, this book. You say Napoleon had 27 mistresses, as if this was a cause for approbation. And yet poor old Nelson gets it in the neck from you because he was beastly to Mrs. Nelson. Um, can I point out, before anything else, that I've never stood for public office in this country. <laughs> I'm not a politician. I can be. I can be. I can be. I can be stroked, and and and. Uh, I think that um, Mrs. Nelson was treated in much the same way as uh, as Mrs. Bonaparte, wasn't she? I mean, what's the difference between one and twenty-seven? Well, exactly. If that's the point, then I could have just. I could have started your first answering your first question, sure. uh, pointing out what Lord Howe said about Nelson, which was um, that he was a despicable moral character, but nonetheless appreciated that he was a very great admiral. And that would have made the same point as I was making with David Lloyd George or Napoleon, surely. Why was he despicable? I didn't call him despicable. Lord Howe, his boss, the you admiral... You chose to quote <laughs> Lord Howe. Yes. His great, his great boss, Lord Howe, considered that in the... Uh, in the Regency period, and you had to be pretty, um, pretty despicable to be morally despicable in the Regency period. Um, <laughs> you, uh, he was considered morally despicable. What he did, I'll tell you what the difference was between him and lots of the others, was what um, Lord Nelson did, who, by the way, I, I have in this book, owing to the fact that he was the greatest uh, British seaman and admiral we've ever had, and an extraordinarily great war leader. Nonetheless, what he used to do was to take um, Emma Hamilton around the grand houses of England, uh, sometimes actually being, being turned back from them. At Chatsworth, the Duke of Devonshire wouldn't allow him to come into the house. Um, and that was considered to be parading your mistress, whereas usually you were just supposed to sort of keep her in Maida Vale. Didn't Napoleon have many mistresses in Maida Vale? <laughs> well, the interesting thing about his mistresses were that he didn't run them um, concurrently. It went, they very much went from one to the next to the next. But we know your views on, on Napoleon. You've got a... Uh, I you've hate got, Napoleon. You hate Napoleon. And we had a debate. Was it actually here in this... Uh, I can't in, remember where it was. I think it was, it was here. It was, it was here, yes, was exactly. It? A few years back. And... Um, uh, and I was debating against Adam Zamoyski, the pro-Napoleon historian, and um, Jeremy was the moderator, and he said, uh, now, Andrew, Napoleon was a monster, wasn't he? This is the moderator. <laughs> wasn't this around the time you claimed that Napoleon was a perfectly normal height, i.e. your own height? <laughs> <laughs> Which I which I uh, admit was a perfectly normal height for the 18th century. <laughs> um, but um, that's right. He, he was five foot six, the average height for a Frenchman of the day. The reason that people think of him as being small was because the English caricaturists, uh, Rowlandson and Gilray and, and, and the, these great uh, caricaturists, constantly made him out to be small. 
which is fascinating because very rarely can a small can somebody who's been made out by a cartoonist to be small also be threatening and dangerous. There was uh, uh, also five foot six, um, which is the same height as Churchill. Before you're about to tell me that I'm a midget, <laughs> um, and uh, because I'm also five foot six. What is the difference in your view between political and military leadership? Um, I'm writing in this book, obviously, about um, polit- mainly about politicians. They, I think, uh, break sort of six to three politicians as opposed to just soldiers. And um, I don't think that there is that much in common between the needs, the, the, the uh, advantages and, and qualities needed in one as in the other. And I also don't think... Uh, I mean, in peacetime to wartime. I think there's a huge difference between peacetime to wartime. In America, um, there's an almost a, an industry um, about leadership where you try and look at uh, great leaders of the past and see military leaders and try to see whether or not you can be a good CEO, the Attila the Hun principle kind of thing. And um, most of that, it strikes me, is... Uh, uh, what was that word you used earlier? <laughs> Bollocks? <laughs> yes. No, no, I, I see, I see, I see. Yes. I, I, I think right. there's a huge difference, because, not least because, obviously, um, just to, um, to make the obvious point, in a democracy, even in, especially in um, the moment that it's fighting an existential crisis, like in the Second World War, you can control the media. And um, you simply can't do that in, uh, in, in peacetime. It, it's, so they're not the same. They can't be the same. Do you think that military leadership, any more than political leadership, can be taught? Um, I think, yes, it can be. And it, and it obviously is all the time. And um, the question is whether or not it can be taught extremely effectively. It strikes me that most of the really great generals do have something instinctive to them as well, or at least something that's beyond anything that can be taught in a staff college. And actually, most great staff colleges appreciate that and, uh, and, and try to factor in other things beyond what you can, you can learn by reading or uh, taking exams. There is something, as a, a sort of sixth sense, I think, with many of these people, certainly the people that I write about in the book. And yet some people do make the transition, don't they, from being a military leader to being a political leader, and, and, or vice versa. And vice versa, yes. Um, Eisenhower went the, first, went the first route, Churchill perhaps the second. Um, well, Churchill had been a soldier um, beforehand, but not a general. Yeah. You know. He always wanted to be a general. It, it was one of the great uh, sadnesses of his life that he never actually uh, controlled an army. He always wanted to. Um, equally, of course, you go the other route with Hitler and Stalin, um, who were politicians first and, and war leaders uh, second. Although not generals in either case. This, these monsters you've already alluded to, Hitler and Stalin and Napoleon, of course. <laughs> no, not Napoleon. Not well, Napoleon. why not? Which, well, because he, wasn't, he was not a totalitarian monster, or at least not the kind that, uh, that uh, Well, what you do you call a person who shoots dead thousands of prisoners of war who've come, surrendered with their hands in the air? 
Um, As he did. I'm assuming you're talking about the Jaffa uh, yes. massacre of 1799. Okay, in the 18th century rules of warfare, especially in the Middle East, if you surrendered six weeks earlier, as they had after the Battle of Gaza, you and promised to go back to France and take what was called parole, and then you're captured again, having broken your word and taken up arms against the French Republic, you lose your life. It is a horrible, uh, to modern ears at least, a a war crime. But it was perfectly uh, understood at that time that that is what was going to happen if they did what they did. You're seriously justifying shooting prisoners? Um, Yes. Uh, No, I certainly am. I certainly am, according to the laws of war of the 18th century. Hmm. And you, can, you can't impo- impose modern-day values on uh, moral values on the 18th century when you're, when you're thinking about and writing about the 18th century. You also go on. This was a s- sentence that was so astonishing I wrote it down. Napoleon is the wartime leader against whom all others must be judged. Why? Well, it's, um, it's all summed up, of course, in the last paragraph of the uh, essay. Um, but he understood on so many levels, and this is, of course, somebody you lost. I mean, it's very important to remember that although he was the war leader against whom all others must be judged, he did um, lose the Battle of Waterloo and died in exile. So I'm not pretending that he was the most successful conqueror of all time. Um, but when it came to the way in which he was able to enthuse his troops, the way in which he was able to... Uh, use topography, the way in which he was able to uh, create systems and institutions that worked for France, the way in which he was able to uh, again and again outfox his political and military foes was something that was truly extraordinary. And lots of other leaders have got lots of other areas that they're very good at, but um, Napoleon ultimately had them all. But he did end up being defeated, of course, didn't he? And um, that's, that's, that's a big negative. It's a big negative, clearly. Clearly, it's a very big negative. But of the seven wars of the coalitions, um, Napoleon started two of them, the Peninsular War and, of course, the War of 1812. And the other five were imposed on him by the Allies, the, the various oh, coalitions that were created. Sake. Sorry, that, that is... A <coughs> what do you mean, for heaven's sake, uh, Jeremy? Um, 1800, this, 1805, 1809, This man wanted to dominate an entire continent. You accept that? I do accept that. I do accept that. However, I don't think... So the wars that, weren't forced on him, were they? Well, so you're saying that, um, that necessarily because he uh, wanted to expand the French Revolution and the advantages of the French Revolution to places beyond well, France. You speak for yourself about the advantages of the French Revolution. I know, later. again, I'm talking about what Napoleon believed. Napoleon understood that certain things, like meritocracy, was a useful and positive thing to um, extend to other peoples. I'm very pleased it didn't come here uh, because it came with an awful lot of, um, of baggage. I agree. But nonetheless, overall, the idea that he was a... Uh, he was a totalitarian dictator and a proto-Hitler and all the various things that we've had over the years about Napoleon, I think, is completely wrong. I'm just saying he's a tyrant, that's all. 
And he was by a, and large, we want to avoid people who think they have the hand of destiny on their shoulder, don't we? Yes, we do, apart from, on occasion, there are other people who do feel that. And the classic, the, the reason that I subtitled my Churchill biography, Walking with Destiny, is because he thought that he had the hand of destiny on his shoulder. Um, and, uh, God save of course us from these was, people. Well, no not, God's, no, not God save us from Churchill in 1940 and 41, who believed that he had a special destiny to, in his words when he was a 16-year-old schoolboy, uh, save London, save England. And it actually was an essential feature, really, because there was no logical or rational reason why he um, was able to believe that Britain would have been on the winning side in the Second World War at that period. Um, France had fallen out, the Russians were on the German side, America showed no interest in being, um, in being uh, involved, and we'd been knocked out off the continent. So you needed, at that point, an irrational, illogical, romantic, uh, historically romantic figure who had a sense of destiny. And, um, and Winston Churchill, thankfully, was that man. Do you think that moral right has anything to do with it? Um, what, leadership? Successful war leadership? Yes. No. Um, again, no, I don't. It's, uh, uh, there are all sorts of, of good war leaders who fight for bad causes. I mean, really successful generals. One thinks of Robert E. Lee in the American Civil War, uh, Eric von Manstein, a very successful general, and they are um, they're, they're, they're fighting for a bad cause. Genghis Khan? Um, do you know, funny enough, I go back as, as far as I can and I don't have a sense enough of his... Uh, of, the, of the moral milieu of um, the Mongols back in, the, in that century. It seems to me that you've been incredibly selective in this uh, choice of generals. I have indeed. That, I, no, I, I, I accept that. It's serendipity. There are lots of people I haven't chosen. I could have chosen FDR, I could have chosen George Washington or Abraham Lincoln, um, all of whom, of course, are very successful war leaders. And I didn't, because I was giving a series of speeches to the New York Historical Society, and I didn't really think I could teach Americans terribly much about them. Where is Wellington in this, for example? Or maybe you don't think he was a great, successful military <coughs> leader? No, I do. I, 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 uh, I love um, Wellington. The, uh, the, the Wellington's battlefields are amongst the best of anyone's. But I don't think he was the greatest British general. I'm, I'm in the Marlborough camp when it comes to... Well, where's uh, Marlborough? He's not in this book either. No, you're quite right. I was, um, uh, I was thinking of writing a biography of Marlborough, and so I didn't want to shoot my bolt, unfortunately. And by the way, I'm still thinking about writing uh, both. When you say... So, um, so I do admit that this is total serendipity. There's all, something extremely subjective and rather almost sort of selfish about How this. How does a chap like you say... I mean, you just said something about Wellington's battlefields. His battlefields are some of the best. Yeah. How do you judge that? Oh, well, because when you go to them... I've. I've been to 16, I think, of Wellington's battlefields. And you look at the topography. I'm, I'm a true believer in, in uh, military historians going to battlefields. If you don't, it reminds me a little of a, of a um, detective not bothering to visit the scene of the crime. Um, you can see all sorts of things that um, you can only understand from 
physically being there. Um, the uh, Primarily, of course, the topography, what everyone can see at the time. When you go to Balaclava, for example, you perfectly understand uh, how it could have happened. Um, because one, because Raglan was able to see one thing that Cardigan wasn't being, wasn't able to see, and so on. When you go to Wellington's battlefield, particularly the um, Iberian ones, um, the, then a classic example is uh, Salamanca, where they have the upper Arapile and the lower Arapile, and to be able to see round where Marmont was marching um, was something that Wellington had to do by going on horseback and he rode 21 miles in the course of trying to work out the right place to attack and so um, it's a uh, it's a it's part of the great pleasure obviously of um, of writing uh, books about these kind of things but it's also absolutely necessary it strikes me I think I've been to 53 or 54 now of Napoleon's battlefields. God, you're a real train spotter on battlefields, aren't you? <laughs> it's kind of the job of a military historian, <laughs> Jeremy. <laughs> sometimes, actually, it's, it, I, I have to admit this, sometimes um, uh, it's rather sad. And, and I, I, I've dragged my wife to several of the ones, including Kursk. In the, in the Kursk salient in Russia, where poor, poor Susan um, traipsed around this massive uh, battlefield. Um, biggest tank battle, of course, in, uh, in history in July 1943. Um, and I then took her to a military museum um, on the first day of our marriage, actually, the day after our, on our honeymoon. And, um, and it was, took her to the, uh, to the Museum of American Aggression in Hanoi. And, uh, and we came you know up... You have a good time. I know, I know. I could show a girl a good time. And um, we were in front of a, a um, formaldehyde two-headed baby that came as a result of um, Agent Orange in the Vietnam War. And uh, she said to me... Um, Darling, is there any chance that we could go to a beach at all uh, during this uh, honeymoon? And she said, and I don't mean Utah or Omaha. (laughs) Oh, and the day, sorry, from the day I got engaged to her, uh, we then went off to the Villa d'Este in uh, Lake Como, and she said, said, oh, how lovely, this is going to be uh, so romantic. I said, yes, I'm really looking forward to seeing where Mussolini was shot. But it's interesting, you, 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 there's no question of morality involved in how you make your deployments on the battlefield, is there? No, no. And, 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 and yet there is in, in whether you're successful or not. I think that... Um, no, I don't think there is in whether you're successful or not either. I think, I think that leadership, war leadership, in that sense, is a bit like nuclear fission, in that it is incredibly powerful, but it can be used for good and used for evil just as easily either way. Let's talk about your heroine, Margaret Thatcher, the only woman in this book. Is there something, first of all, uniquely male about being a war, a successful war leader? Certainly not, no. I think there's been a... There was only a few days ago in The Times a fascinating article um, where one of the universities did a um, comparative, um, it was done entirely um, on statistical grounds, a a, a comparative um, analysis of 
kings versus queens. They only did um, kings versus queens. They did 1450, I think, through to uh, 1900. And um, it turned out, out actually, that um, queens uh, fought 40% more wars than kings. So that phrase that um, Rudyard Kipling came out with about the female of the species being more deadly than the male actually has some kind of statistical analysis behind it. And, um, and so, uh, so I think that's the, that's the answer to you. It's a meaningless statistic, that, though, isn't it? I mean, wasn't the last king to, to lead forces into battle George II? Um, yes, in Detignor in 1743. But it didn't, he's not the last king to have um, started a war. It goes up to 1900, so you have Queen Victoria um, being responsible, at least according to this analysis, for, um, for the wars of the Victorian age, which, of course, doesn't make sense because she didn't personally start the Zulu War, for example. Whereas Catherine the Great, um, uh, Maria Theresa, uh, these, the, Elizabeth I can be responsible for their wars. Let's talk about Margaret Thatcher a bit. I mean, she was a politician before she was a war leader. Why do you admire her so much? Golly, um, I suppose it was because I was born in 1963, and by the time she became um, Prime Minister when I was 16 years old uh, in 1979, I very much had the sense that the United Kingdom was slipping to the level of almost a third-rate power. And I thought that she was absolutely um, revolted by this and wanted to try to uh, reverse that process. And uh, I think over the next 11 and a half years, she succeeded in that. And so she is somebody, for me, who is an exemplar of, uh, of what I hope a politician would be. But you can only judge whether you're a third-rate power or a first-rate power or a fifth-rate power in military terms? No, absolutely not. No, of course not. No, I I, I saw all sorts of things in the late 1970s that struck me as being something that a third-rate power would have, whereas a first-rate or second-rate, and I'm not pretending for a moment that we're a superpower, um, so second-rate power would um, expect... Such as? Well, I, I mean, you, you must be able to remember the, um, uh, the, the horrors of the winter of discontent. I certainly do. I was 15. I, I read the papers and watched the news and saw the uh, way in which the country seemed to be falling to bits. You were appalled by the fact that there was social strife. Not so much that, as because um, I can guess what your next stage question is going to be about social strife. There was plenty of social strife under Margaret Thatcher, of course, as well. Um, as a, a clear sense that we as a nation were just simply not being what we could be. Um, I thought that we were on the retreat... Um, and this actually does, I suppose, fit in with strategy uh, with regard to the special relationship. I thought that retreat across the world in front of um, Soviet communism. I thought that we were in a terrible position with regard to the power of the trade unions, um, which seemed again and again to go beyond their, their natural rights as trade unions. 
and I thought we had incredibly weak leadership in, uh, the, um, in the governments of the 1970s, or at least the late 1970s, when I came into um, a sense of personal understanding of politics. What was it about the way that the war in the Falklands was conducted that somehow restored your faith? I think the first thing was that it was conducted at all. Um, most post-war governments, post, certainly post-Suez, wouldn't have um, fought that war. They would have found some kind of a condominium um, process whereby Argentina would have some kind of uh, sovereign uh, agreement and we wouldn't. Um, and that would be rather sensible, wouldn't it? Well, this is the problem, you see. <laughs> the uh, no is the answer. It was um, the huge, um, the, the, the will of the people who lived there to a massive degree, like 98%, wanted to remain British. And so what people would have thought in the um, Foreign Office about what was sensible struck me as completely different from what was right. So you're in favour of 3,000 sheep farmers somehow determining British foreign and defence policy, are you? If they had been given promises over the previous century that they could remain British, yes, in the same way that I think that Gibraltar should remain British if the majority of Gibraltarians want that. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Well, where does passion enter the picture then? I think it's vital, really. You see it again and again um, with regard to what they consider to be vision. Um, They, often in their um, 20s, late 20s, they recognise that, mid to late 20s, they recognise that they have a special capacity, that they have an ability to be a war leader. Um, And uh, this was something that I gave these speeches, nine of these speeches, and it was only when I was giving the tenth concluding speech, drawing all the aspects of them together, that I realised, firstly, the ruthlessness point, but secondly, how important it was um, to uh, have that capacity as well. There's one person we haven't talked about, of course, and that's de Gaulle, whom for some reason you seem to think is great. I would say he was just an arrogant, big-nosed bigot. (laughs) Well, Well, what is it that made de Gaulle great? Um, 
I don't for a moment deny that he was an arrogant, big-nosed bigot. Um, that, uh, as, as I mentioned earlier, you can, uh, you can be a, uh, a bad person but a great war leader. And he was definitely an arrogant, big-nosed bigot. Um, however, however, he was also responsible for saving the honour of France. Had he not left on the um, 17th of June 1940, had he not flown to London, had he not made that great speech of the 18th of June about France losing the battle but not losing the war, had he not led the Free French and um, through his truculence on many occasions, of course, um, actually persuaded the Allies that, um, that France was not just Vichy, it was a different entity as well, a continuing entity from, uh, from 1940. I think that um, he could not be considered a great man, but even Churchill, who had row after row with him, uh, and who one, on one occasion um, described him as a um, female llama surprised in her bath, um, <laughs> Even Churchill, uh, who, uh, who t- very often actually um, wanted de Gaulle, uh, when I say very often, at least on two occasions, wanted de Gaulle arrested. Um, nonetheless, he never um, came back from the, from the overall point of view, which is one that I share, that he was a great man. And I say it through clenched teeth. But why? Wherein consists the greatness um, the, greatness, the greatness consisted in the fact that he was a junior minister of the Vichy um, government who would not accept what the whole of the rest of the Vichy government did, which was um, the capitulation of June 1940. And that was essential politically to be able to point to a, ki- a part of France that still, what he called a certain idea of France, um, that would not surrender and was willing to continue to fight on although numerically they were tiny and a very, very small minority of Frenchmen. And virtually none of them actually heard that broadcast. Yeah. Uh, one of the things we, we, we know is that of the, um, uh, on the 18th of June, it wasn't, the BBC broadcast was not picked up by very many people. However, of course, during the rest of the, um, of the war, people did know that this had happened, that the Free French were in existence, that de Gaulle was in London, and that when the um, liberation came, which was not, of course, down to France, but was down to the English-speaking peoples, then there would be an alternative provisional government that would be able to take over in Paris, uh, led by, by de Gaulle. Is there anyone else we ought to talk about, or should we take some questions from the, from the audience? If it's, a, if it's a question of being um, questioned by you or the audience, I'd love to go over <laughs> to the audience. <laughs> well... Uh-oh. Right, He's there are apparently... <laughs> right, the, the, yeah, come on, someone <laughs> kick him hard. Uh, so there are some paddles somewhere. Uh, yes, here's one. You are number one. Uh, Good evening. I'm uh, Dr. Jeff Dunn. Uh, Now, I'm from Liverpool, Andrew, and so your comments about Mrs. Thatcher don't go down very well with me if we're talking about her domestic um, record. Well, we're not. No, exactly. (laughs) about wartime. Exactly, exactly. So I want to focus on um, what you said about her in the book, which I've read a bit of. You said yourself that... She cut two and a half million pounds by not sending the H- by 
the plan to cut HMS endurance, but it costs seven billion. Now that's not very clever, is it? No, uh, clearly not. No, it, it, it makes the um, the uh, line that we should always remember, the, the, which actually does go back to ancient Rome about if you want to, uh, if you want peace, prepare for war. Um, so to cut defence, as she learned so expensively, uh, is a big mistake. Actually, we're cutting defence um, at the moment, and it's a big mistake. But I think that uh, you're absolutely right. For the Foreign Office, um, Lord Carrington, who, of course, took the ultimate fool for that, um, to have cut HMS endurance, and therefore, given the, um, given the junta, uh, the message that we weren't serious about the Falklands, was a, um, was a big mistake. I'm not saying that, my, that all of my nine uh, leaders didn't make mistakes. My gosh, they made mistake after mistake. Churchill made blunder after blunder in his uh, career. He got the abdication crisis wrong and the um, blackened hands, as I mentioned earlier. He got the uh, gold, cri- gold standard wrong, women's suffrage, the Dardanelles. But the key thing is that when you get something right, um, then you should be applauded for that too. Sorry, you choose. Yes, number four. Yeah. Um, hi, thank you for the opportunity to ask the question. So I, I find it interesting, Jeremy's questions around um, morality uh, related to the greatness and if that plays a role. And I want to ask you now, Andrew, um, doesn't it play a role at all uh, in, the, in defining the greatness? And maybe even if I could ask if you can draw a parallel to more modern conflicts. So are there any kind of guiding principles for wartime, wartime morality um, in modern conflicts like the one that's now in Turkey or um, Syria, North Syria, and where you could understand both, both sides? But, but are there any kind of moral grounds that you will take uh, into consideration in conflict or, or just winning? Oh, no. I got, sorry. It, um, I, I, if, if, if people have thought that I've said that there's no such thing as morality in the conflict, I was certainly not attempting to do that at all. Of course I believe that there's uh, moral aspects to conflicts. All I'm saying is that, um, is that war leaders who are on the wrong sides of the, of the um, moral line classic example, I suppose, being Robert E. Lee in the American Civil War, uh, fighting for a bad cause, but nonetheless can be a a great leader. Um, No, absolutely, what's happened in Syria is monstrous. Of course it is. The Second World War was a Manichaean struggle between good and evil, but um, what I was trying to argue was that being personally a, a good person doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be a great war leader any more than being a bad person means you're going to be a bad war leader. Is there anyone of a more recent vintage whom you think to have been a great war leader? um, What about Ho Chi Minh? Well, I was about to say General Giap, actually. Yes, same war. Yes, Uh, Ho Chi Minh and General Giap... um, obviously were completely um, extraordinary. To be able to have, uh, with that tiny nation, to have effectively defeated uh, one of the superpowers is um, a truly extraordinary achievement. Anyone else? 
So um, the Second World War, uh, you know, the, the Germany and Japan made huge advances. And my question is, what on earth was going on in the, the leaders' mind, Hitler's, the, the Japanese, when they really so badly overreached and then the war um, turned? What, what was the thought process? Could you talk a bit about that? Yes. Um, the, one of the interesting things about the Second World War is how little they interacted, the Germans and the Japanese. Um, this was partly because of Hitler's innate, insane racism, thinking that although, of course, when he made the pact with Japan, uh, he had his, um, his scientists go off to try to argue that the Japanese were actually Aryan people. Um, completely absurd. They, they, they got calipers out and, and measured Japanese skulls that were taken from the Ethnographic Museum in Berlin. Um, and, um, but he himself never believed this uh, for a moment. And what, that, what this led to was, firstly, of course, um, his decision to uh, declare war on America only four days after Pearl Harbor. Um, a... a as it turned out, literally suicidal decision. Um, but also, they didn't, um, the high commands didn't bother to interact in any way, which was very fortunate, of course, for the, um, for the British in India and the Indian Ocean. It was also um, fortunate because advances that the Germans made in things like anti-tank uh, weaponry were not passed over to the Japanese and, uh, and vice versa. So, um, so they were two, essentially, there were two entirely separate wars taking place. But as you pointed out, um, they were both involved in massive overreach. Uh, by the spring of 1942, the, German, the um, Japanese sorry, had taken one-eighth of the planet, if you just add it all up, which is an extraordinary um, thing, considering that they started in December uh, 1941. Um, Hitler... Similarly, when he took the decision to go um, to, to, to turn south and go down to Kiev rather than concentrate solely on uh, Moscow in, uh, in, October 19, sorry, in September 1941, also was responsible for massive overreach. And, um, you, uh, and you see this again and again, um, not to mention a certain person who also went into Russia uh, in 1812. Um, but that was a pretty stupid decision, <laughs> wasn't it? <laughs> um, yes, I'm but, sorry, I shut up. You know, um, but there are... Um, actually, there are lots of um, rational and, and logical reasons for why he did that. Um, sorry, there's a chap down here. Watch out, this is the informed section of the audience. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You better have this. It better be a damn good question. Well, well an excellent session. Um, Jeremy, you seemed a bit dismissive of Thatcher, but it aren't Thatcher, Reagan and Gorbachev who avoided conflict some of the most recent, most successful war leaders who created peace, the breakup of the USSR. And, I mean, this was remarkable avoiding conflict. If you want to beat someone up, beat him up. <laughs> Very good question. <laughs> What's the answer, Jeremy, would you say? I would say, of course, they're significant figures. Whether they're war leaders is another matter. Is Reagan a war leader? Is Gorbachev a war leader? I don't think so. Margaret Thatcher was in the Falklands, of course. 
peacemongers um, in this case, aren't they? Yes, which is a gigantic achievement. To have ended the, to have ended the Cold War without, without um, bloodshed in Europe is a pretty extraordinary achievement. I agree. Okay, next question. <laughs> you choose. Yes, sir. Can you truly call uh, Churchill and Hitler great war leaders when looking at um, the comments of, for example, the German High Command or General Allenbrook at the amateur interference in war operations by their respective leaders and the hindrances that those interferences might have caused in successful war operations? Yes, that's a good question. I mean, you get, of course, an awful lot more criticism by the German generals um, once Hitler's dead uh, but you would, have, you would expect that uh, in, a, in a totalitarian dictatorship um, anyhow. Um, the, uh, you, up, until, up until Operation Barbarossa in June 1941, um, Hitler had, had got pretty much everything extraordinarily right. Um, Poland defeated in, uh, in six weeks, uh, France crushed in six weeks, the um, us thrown off the continent, um, both uh, Greece and Yugoslavia defeated in less than six weeks. I mean, it was a, it was a pretty extraordinary um, capacity of, um, of early victories. But he did, of course, have the advantage of knowing when the war was going to start. Um, with regard to, uh, to Churchill, um, I, uh, I think that you can definitely call him a, a war leader, a great war leader, um, not just because of his speeches and, his, um, and his, uh, the way that he was able to create morale uh, in, the, in the Blitz and the Battle of Britain and then later on, but also, actually, we are wrong to assume that... Um, Lord Allenbrook was always right about everything and Winston Churchill was always wrong simply because Lord Allenbrook was so rude about Churchill all the time. Um, any more than Fritz Halder writing about, uh, writing about the Fuhrer is automatically right about every subject. There is an assumption, I think, amongst many military historians that the general's always going to be right and the politician's always wrong. Um, a lot of the um, criticisms that uh, are made by... Um, Alan Brooke are made against everybody else as well. In fact, there are only three people in the whole of the Second World War that Alan Brooke had any nice things to say about in his diaries at all. Um, uh, MacArthur and um, uh, he's, he's, he's nice about smuts and uh, the other one, Stalin. Um, you, uh, uh, so, so there was a sort of general sense of ire in, in those diaries. And the reason for that is, I think, amongst, amongst um, the actual arguments themselves, he used those diaries as a sort of a pressure cooker. You know, he went back and wrote, up, wrote them up, sent them off to his wife in the mail, by the way. If the Germans had had somebody in the Hampshire post office, um, <laughs> they'd have known about everything, including the nuclear bomb, actually. Um, but, um, but he used those diaries as a way of staying calm after a long period of working with Winston Churchill, which was exhausting for everybody. He used to keep them up until three o'clock in the morning. Uh, he would... Um, it was only on one occasion did he actually get drunk. Um, on the 7th of March, 1940. 
uh, four, where what they decided, the chiefs of staff that evening, it was at Chequers, it was three o'clock in the morning, he'd been drinking solidly since six o'clock in the evening, um, and he, uh, on that occasion, what they decided was to hold the same meeting the next morning as though the last one hadn't happened. <laughs> Do you think, on the whole, though, it's a good idea to keep politicians out of war judgments? I don't think it's possible, because ultimately, um, Clausewitz was right about, uh, about war being uh, uh, politics by other means. I think, it can't be, I think it can't be done. And also, you don't want just generals to be in charge of it. Right, number four, please. Thank you. Hi there, Andrew. You recently shared a stage with Stephen Kotkin, who wrote um, a Stalin biography, yeah. and he made the case that although we won the war, we lost the peace, and that lineage you can trace right to the problems we have with China today. So that was that like a, a... What do you think about that mistake we made, potentially, with the Foistian pact with Stalin? Well, I don't think that there was an alternative... Um, and I think that Stephen Kotkin accepted that in the... Um, you're talking about the debate that took place at, uh, at Stanford University a couple of months ago. Um, I think that when you have over a million Red Army troops stationed in Poland um, in February 1945, that when, when Churchill and Roosevelt met Stalin at uh, Yalta that month... They pretty much had to accept his promises with regard to a independent and um, integral Poland. And uh, however much they might privately have wondered whether or not this was ever going to be um, genuinely honoured, there was no alternative. There was no way to free Poland in, um, at the time of the Yalta uh, conference. So it was a it was a grindingly difficult um, moment. But ultimately, what was the alternative? I think um, I think Stephen accepts that. Any numbers anyway? Yes, number one. War leaders who shaped our world. Do you think our world will be shaped by war leaders in the future? Um, gosh, good, so good question. One, of course, hopes not. But it has been an ever-present part of the human condition um, for time immemorial. One assumed that war was going to lessen uh, when the nuclear bomb was discovered. Um, and it has, and it has. We are now fighting fewer wars. Few, fewer people, should I say, fewer people are dying in wars now, um, according to uh, that... Um, that um, Stephen Pinker, I think it is, isn't it? Who... Um, uh, the better part of our angels of ourselves or whatever the yes. book is and, and he goes statistically into this in very great detail and, and nothing's happened since that book was published five or six years ago to disprove that actually people are dying fewer people are dying as a result of war than ever before um, but you have the, the ever present danger that many more people will die as a result of war um, than ever before because of the nature of, um, of technological advance. So I don't think that it's something that we can um, assume is, is not going to happen again. Horrible thought, but nonetheless, uh, it's, it, it has to be ever present in our um, geopolitical calculations. Andrew, what do you think are the lessons that uh, modern would-be leaders can learn from the people in your book? 
I, I, that's a very good question. I think, um, again and again, it does come down to this sense of um, the, the promise of victory. Whether or not it actually uh, can be uh, rationally presented, there are people, who war leaders, who can offer victory in a way that the people believe and, and either they genuinely believe or they want to believe and those are the best uh, war leaders. As far as ge- um, geopolitics or grand strategy is concerned, every war is so very different uh, that I don't think that there are, there are uh, those kind of lessons. And when I go off to American um, and, and British war colleges to talk about uh, wars, that's one, of the, that's one of the points that I always try to make, is that no war is the same as the um, one before or the next one. And so you, it's very dangerous to, uh, to take too much um, in the way of a lesson. Sorry, yes, number two, please. You, Andrew, you haven't mentioned Mao Zedong as being somebody who shaped the world in our lifetimes. And also, I wonder where you would put Mr. Putin, who seems to be running rings around the rest of us in small circles, despite his rather poor economical situation in Russia. Yes, that's right. And I saw um, uh, Russia described many years ago, but it still stays with me as... um, uh, upper Volta with rockets. And uh, there is an element of that, isn't there, that, that um, despite the fact that they don't have an economy to equate with, um, with great power status, uh, they certainly do have a, uh, an armory um, to equate with it. I think that... Um, I didn't put Putin in there because there's, there's been one um, particular... Uh, war that he's fighting in um, in eastern Ukraine, which is doesn't really count as a as a uh, existential struggle in any particular way. Um, and with regard to Mao Zedong, again, I'm afraid, I, as I have um, with some of these American leaders, I've just put it down entirely to uh, to ignorance, which I know that um, Jeremy doesn't let me get away with. But under normal circumstances, I think ignorance is a good reason not to write about something. I agree and I speak as a journalist (laughs) is there anyone that would like to have one last question I think thank you Um, our world's probably never been more shaped arguably in terms of design than in the aftermath of World War I and rather disastrously so do you think there's something inherent in good war leaders that make them terrible at leading the peace Yes, um, I think there's two views about Versailles, really. And can I just put the, the alternative one? The, the one that we're all told, of course, is the, is the standard, straightforward one, that it was a Carthaginian peace, um, that we were so harsh on Germany, not, lo- not least with the war guilt clause, that we were, we were just waiting for another recession to um, allow a monster like Adolf Hitler to rise up. The second, another, another way of looking at it might be, and I'm not necessarily presenting this in anything other than um, a, uh, um, 
sort of teasing sense, might be that actually what we got wrong at the end of the First World War is that we didn't treat Germany in the same way as we did at the end of the Second World War. And that in fact, keeping Germany as one country rather than splitting it in the way that we did after the uh, Second World War would have been a better way of trying to avert war. It averted war very successfully after the Second World War, after all. Germany had only been a nation since 1871. So by 1917, it had only been around for 40 years or so. Before that, it had been 35 countries. And then before the Treaty of um, of Vienna, it had been 350 principalities and duchies. Now, I'm not saying that those would have worked uh, economically in a modern sense. But nonetheless... Could you not have had a different kind of peace in 1918, 1919, which was just as tough on Germany, but actually was much more efficient and, and kept the peace? It's a question mark. Anyone? We could, have, we could have one last question. We've got time for one more, I think. There's a chap I was at university with just down there. Who, who's, oh. He's had his hand up. No, no, he, he, he's, he's perfectly possible he's going to ask some horribly unpleasant question. I'm Go sure on. I haven't been... Um, give, give it to I the man who's going to ask the nasty question. I, I haven't been in any communication with him before this, but I, I do feel that... Um, do you recognise him? I do, Andrew Burke-Smith from Pembroke College. What's, what's, your, what's your question, Andrew? Um, Andrew, I wondered whether uh, among the characteristics that make up great war leaders, whether there is a, an unfortunate one, namely an inability to identify your own for sale date or expiry date, as it were. Oh, yes. No, that's certainly true. Yes, that's... Um it's much less of a vicious question I was expecting. Uh, um, uh, no, totally, and you see it again and again, and certainly in, in many of my, um, in my um, war leaders, Margaret Thatcher being a classic example, she, had, she probably should have retired at 10 years when she'd been in, in power in 1989. That would have saved an awful lot of, uh, of uh, trouble later on. Uh, Hitler, obviously, but then with regard to people like Hitler and Stalin, you have to carry on till the, till the day you die because your um, successor... Uh, can't be um, trusted to allow you to carry on living. Um, uh, <laughs> Churchill should definitely have retired in... Um, he had three opportunities. He could have gone at the time of the coronation in June 53, when he had his stroke in July 53, um, at his 80th birthday in November 54, and he just kept going on. In, inherent in him was this DNA that you just... Once you got power, you didn't give it up. And you see that again and again in, uh, in politicians. Um, so I think, yes, it's very much... Uh, with Eisenhower and George Marshall, there were specific dates when, of course, they were going to, um, going to give up um, power. And um, so, yes, the, the answer is that it is an inherent um, part of the, of the danger of, of having a great war leader who everybody admires, that they just never know when to go. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. And on your behalf, if I may, I will just say thank you to Andrew. Thank you. Thank you very much. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world... And whatever you're doing, right now, you're also listening to my voice. This 
is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.